Today we're excited to speak with Evan Reed, who leads the Materials Computation and Theory Group at Stanford. He is Associate Professor of Material Science and Engineering, and started out his career in physics, working on shock compression of condensed matter. Today his lab is involved in a wide range of research centered around energy and electronics applications. And our principal philosophy of the group is to first identify problems with impact, and then work backwards to identify and develop the set of tools required to solve the problem. Increasingly, this toolset has included machine learning, but applied carefully and always with physics in mind. So in our conversation today, we're going to take a deep dive into what this means and why it's important. This is the Materials and Megabytes podcast. How did you get interested in using machine learning for physics or chemistry problems? Well, we have a, a couple of different directions in machine learning. And so let me just, just focus on um, one of those. So the, um, you know, our, our group focuses on modeling and materials, and, and frequently we're trying to find the most promising materials to do modeling on, just like experimental groups. So we're, <clears throat> we're thinking about finding the, um, the materials, for example, um, that have the best um, ionic conductivity for um, solid electrolyte applications. And um, I had a, a, a student a number of years ago who was very interested in this, finding good uh, ion conducting materials and um, if you want to do density functional theory calculations on these materials, the first problem you run into is which materials should I, should I look at? And, and there's a huge, huge space of materials. There are probably over 10,000 known uh, candidates, uh, lithium-containing materials, and many more um, that, are, that are unknown yet to be synthesized and, and characterized. So there's really a huge space of possibilities, and there's also a lot of um, I would say in air quotes, wisdom about uh, what aspects these materials make them good ion conductors. And so we started out in this endeavor by kind of just, just following some of the conventional wisdom. But after a while, we started to think, well, you know, really instead of just spending all this time uh, doing deep dives on specific materials guided by you know, conventional wisdom, which may or may not really bear out, um, we really should take a step back and think about how, you know, what kinds of techniques uh, could we use to at least statistically get a, get a rough idea which of these 10,000 or more materials might be the best ones to do DFT calculations on. And so um, as, as, a, um, as, as an advisor for a group, that's actually what I spend most of my time doing, is sort of thinking about what are the, what are the right things to, to, to look at and um, so we, we, we took a step back, and, and uh, we're also here at Stanford University, and uh, for better or for worse, if you're here on campus, you hear about machine learning all the time, and it's sort of in the water here, I think, and so there's a lot of interest in it, a lot of people thinking about how to apply it to various applications, and so uh, these two, this kind of problem and this technique sort of came together, at least in this instance, at the same time. And in many respects, uh, this was an opportunity for me to outsource my job to the students <laughs> because they're really doing the part of the job that, that I should be doing. And so that was, that was, that's at least one of the ways we got into machine learning. So you mentioned that you were previously using density functional theory methods to study ion conductors. 
and you switch to machine learning. And what kind of advantages um, did machine learning methods offer um, over traditional methods such as density functional theory? Yeah, I think they're, the, the two methods are really complementary. So um, I think they, they both make really important contributions to, to, for predicting properties of these materials, but I think they're, they're really kind of orthogonal contributions. So the, the, the density functional theory calculations of, of ionic diffusion, ionic conductivity, are for single crystals at high temperatures. They're um, you know, probably relatively accurate within you know, maybe a couple of orders of magnitude or so. But real materials are rarely single crystals, and they frequently aren't. They frequently have other microstructural or uh, chemical aspects that deviate from from perfect single crystals that you can do with density functional theory. And so there's a there's a kind of a gap between a measurement you do on a real material, say a powder in the lab, and the DFT calculation. And, and the machine learning really has potential to to work with experimental information. So if you have a bunch of experimental measurements, then you can um, potentially use the, the machine learning to, to develop a, a model, a predictive model based on that experimental information. And so in some sense, the, the, you know, this ability to, to utilize directly experimental information to make predictions uh, has some advantages. And, and, and the machine learning is also very very fast. It's much faster than uh, density functional theory and molecular dynamics calculations. It's uh, possible, depending on your features, it's possible to screen tens of thousands of materials uh, in a day or, or even much faster than that. And so it, it's sort of, I view these two techniques as being kind of complementary. So the, the machine learning has potential to um, screen lots of materials, not maybe not necessarily as, as accurately, as density functional theory, but maybe maybe more accurately, it's not clear. And the DFT is kind of more of a well-defined. We know what it is. We know, you know, we, we don't. We know there's no impurities. We know it's single crystal, but it may or may not actually connect with with what you make in, in the lab. So I think they're really quite complementary. Well, that's machine learning enabled for your work that was not possible before. I, I think in in, in materials and in, in physics the. Perhaps one of the most useful things to come out of this will be, will be really more of a. Um, I view this this machine learning stuff as really just the sort of rise of more robust empiricism. So empiricism's been in in physics uh, since physics has been around, but you know usually it's it's done by humans and it's kind of limited to making you know finding correlations between something you want to know and, and one feature or one one aspect of, of this physical system that you think is important. And uh, machine learning I really see as just, just a sort of extension of that. It's really a way to extend uh, for more complex data sets uh, that depend on kind of multiple degrees of freedom. It's a way to kind of more robustly or more rigorously uh, identify, basically make predictions uh, with these empirical kinds of approaches but I also see a lot of potential pitfalls, and one of the things I'm worried about is is uh, that I'm sure others have mentioned in your podcast that uh, the data sets that we have to work with are tiny compared to uh, what the CS community works with. 
And that means um, we have a sort of extra level of, of responsibility to uh, uh, ensure that these models are, are really predictive. And it's easy to get fooled. We have experience, a number of experiences uh, producing models that are just not, they, they seem great uh, with naive tests, but they turn out not to work well at all. And they turn out to have very little predictive power. And so um, I, I, don't, I don't see machine learning replacing anything. I, I see it really just acting as a, um, as a way to, to take f sort of physical models, maybe a, a set of approximate physics-based models, and piecing them together in a way that's kind of a little bit more robust than maybe what a human would do um, on complex data sets and high-dimensional uh, sorts of problems and sort of piecing the physics together to give you the most predictive power. And I think that um, we, we can't throw away 200 years of physics um, because that 200 years of physics is really like leveraging lots of other data. So if you're, if you're fitting, for example, you're fitting a, you're fitting a, a reaction barrier or something and, and you want to make a, a prediction, you assume Arrhenius kinetics and you want to make a prediction, you know, at some some particular temperature, and we can be fairly confident about that prediction because we know this, this Arrhenius uh, functional form comes from physics and, and we know it's verified with other data. And so we don't need to have a lot of data to fit this, this form for a new type of reaction. It's because we're leveraging other data. And so I think when we have small data sets, we have to take physics, sort of things that come from physics where we're leveraging other data uh, as features. In those models, and so in in our group, we think a lot about you know how how small is small, uh, how big is big, how many features are we allowed to guess before we're just fooling ourselves uh, and overfitting something. So these are these are I think one of the one of the biggest uh, challenges, and I also worry because there are no standards for doing this right now. There are no standards for identifying the nature of your data, how um, how how well sampled is it. Um, how does your, your test data compare to your training data? There are no kinds of canonical ways of presenting this in a, in a quickly digestible form. And so if you look at what's in the literature, there's a spectrum of, of approaches that are taken, and it's, just, it's hard to tell um, how it's hard to compare um, different models in the literature. And this is something the CS community has, has, has also encountered, and they've, they've approached this by having some uh, kind of common data sets and, and techniques for doing this. So I think it will evolve, but I think initially this is kind of the Wild West, and I think, I think we may be in for a little bit of a rough ride for a little while uh, before uh, settling on something more like what the CS community is, is doing with standardized, uh, standardized presentation of results and on standardized data sets. What is a problem in physics or chemistry that machine learning has not yet been applied to that you think would be beneficial to the field and that you'd like to see students work on? I, I think this space could, uh, will greatly benefit from some of the, the kind of development of some standards for presenting results for materials problems. I think one of the... Um, one of the potential barriers for the adoption of these methods in the, in the materials domain is the, the challenges that um, many in the materials community have with, with reading papers that are published and, and really understanding how well or, or not well these models are working and what are they, 
what are they really doing for us as a community? And so I know this is not a super exciting thing, but I think it's very important. I think if this is going to go somewhere and continue to move forward, we as a community should really be thinking about how to do this. And that can be um, development of standards for presenting results. It can also potentially include standard data sets for specific types of problems where you develop some new method and you can you can sort of apply it to this kind of canonical data set um, to compare to other the results of others. Um, there are a variety of ways that um, this problem has been tackled within other communities like the CS community. What challenges do you see for interdisciplinary collaborations between the machine learning community and the material science community? And what would be some ways to address those challenges? Yeah, I think, I think there are a number of key distinctions between the types of problems that the, the CS community is, is, is focusing on and, and the kinds of problems that, that crop up in materials problems. And of course, one of the biggest differences is the, the sizes of data that, that these two communities uh, tend to work with. And in the, in the materials domain, they're, they're small. If you, for example, if you go to the literature and you, you look up the, um, the, the number of measurements of some particular property of interest that have been collected over many decades, you might only find a few dozen or a few hundred or maybe even a few thousand if you're lucky. And those are really tiny amounts of data. Um, compared to what the, the the kinds of techniques that the CS community um, is is um, uh, developing are really aimed for, and so so there's this immediate difference in in data sizes. And um, if you you know if you're just kind of focusing on the CS standard CS techniques, you might think this is a hopeless problem. Um, but the um, the drivers for, for doing machine learning in the materials world are really quite different. The drivers are not, not because these, these are natural machine learning problems. The drivers are because the data is so expensive to collect. It's taken decades to collect all this data. We should be trying to squeeze everything out of this that we possibly can. And so the, the motivations are really quite different. I think that's one of the kind of sociological differences. Whereas in CS, it's kind of the other way around. It's sort of like, wow, we have all this data. What can we, what can we do with this? And um, so that's one kind of distinction. I think the drivers for these two communities are different. Also, the, the, the kind of approaches to these problems are different too. I think in the materials domain, uh, a lot of uh, effort goes into thinking about features because um, while these are small data problems, we, we do have the advantage of having hundreds of years of physics to draw upon to identify features. And essentially, this hundreds of years of physics is, is leveraging other data for other problems. So we're kind of augmenting these small data problems with things that we know from other data. And so that, that also, I think, is relatively unique for problems in the physical sciences. And um, the, the CS community, I think, is kind of largely... Uh, tackling problems where you have so much data that maybe the, the, the careful selection of features is, is not as important as it is in the physical uh, physical sciences. So that's another difference. And that means in the physical sciences, we think mostly about features and less about the, the models, you know, whether we're going to use a neural net or um, you know, SVM or what, you know, what kind of model we're going to use. And the, that's the perspective, you know, this kind of model perspective 
is the, the perspective that's frequently conveyed in, in the classes that I think a lot of people are taking on machine learning. It's really all about the models, you know, the neural nets, the, the support vector machines, how they work, and uh, that's, that's certainly an important piece, but I think in, in the physical, scientists, physical sciences, there's this other piece that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in, these, in these classes. And so I think we're, right now, we're kind of training students to sort of think about just part of the problem and not, not the other part, which in the physical sciences, I think, is just as important. Do you have any closing thoughts on this topic that you would like to share? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there are reasons to be very excited about the um, combining ideas from data science with uh, the physical sciences. There are also uh, many reasons to be very, very cautious about doing this, I think some of which we've, we've touched on. But I think in cases where we're very, very careful and construct models from, from data that are really truly predictive, I think there are uh, exciting new opportunities. I think from a, from a materials modeling perspective, these models, where they work, uh, where we believe them, are, are fast enough to really uh, enable uh, new ways of thinking and pushing beyond our, our usual approach to materials modeling where we're kind of thinking about one particular property. So normally, you know, we, we want to find a material that has a, a particular type of band gap or a particular type of ionic conductivity or something like that. But when you go talk to people in industry, they, they're really, you know, if you want to make a device out of your material, devices are combinations of materials, there's a whole spectrum of, of uh, constraints that are, are placed on these materials. And in, in academia, you know, it's, it's, we, we tend not to think about this full spectrum of constraints, but I think when you have vast models to predict all these things, it really does open new possibilities of kind of thinking about designing whole devices. And so that's something new and exciting that may be coming. And I also have a sense that in spaces where these models work and they're generally accepted by their communities, I think they will wind up providing roadmaps for, for the community. So, for example, if you uh, want uh, a new, uh, if you want to do experimental measurements of some new ion conductor uh, in the future, you might first go to one of these databases and see, see what's there and uh, maybe even be able to get a sense for what materials uh, you can do your measurements on that will have the most impact on our knowledge and ability to predict ionic conductivities of materials. And I see these being kind of distributed, you know, maybe community maintained on, on websites, but I do think uh, in the future a lot of our our kind of research directions and maybe even funding will be guided by these kind of community accepted models. And a lot of the wisdom that has been collected over the previous decades will be effectively incorporated into these models so that if you're a new researcher, you don't have to go back to 50 years of literature and read, the, read all these papers. You just, you just fire up this model and, and it will help you kind of decide what the, what the best materials to consider are for your application. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Materials and Megabytes podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Materials Computation and Theory Group at Stanford University. We look forward to having you join us again next time.